Hey, take the uh, study guide out of your worship folder, if you would. We're going to recite together the Lord's Prayer. I'm curious, how many of you uh, were taught or memorized the Lord's Prayer growing up as a, as a kid? Oh, my. A lot of you. How many of you were, grew up in a church that recited this prayer often, like maybe every week? Wow. Okay. And when you learned the prayer, did you learn, forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses? <laughs> okay, both. Yeah, both. All right. Well, this is a, a wonderful prayer. And uh, we're going to recite it in the King James Version, the beautiful language of the King James, since that's what uh, many people learned it in. Let's say this aloud together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, I love the prayers of the Bible, don't you? I love the prayers that we find contained in the pages of Scripture. I love the prayers of Paul that he wrote down for us in his epistles. We're going to be looking at some of those next weekend. I love the prayers found in the Old Testament. I love the prayers that poured out of David's heart that we find recorded in the Psalms. And I love the prayers of Jesus. You know, I believe the place to start when helping someone learn how to pray is with the prayers that are found in the Bible. So if you're a parent and you're trying to teach your young children how to pray, I would recommend you start there with the prayers that are in the Bible. Or if you're in a discipling relationship with somebody or a mentoring relationship or a spiritual partnership and you're trying to learn how to pray, start with the prayers that are given to us in the Bible. I know after six weeks in this series on prayer, some of you might be thinking, so when do I get to ask God for that Lamborghini I've been wanting for so long? Six sermons on prayer, and I haven't heard much yet about how to get what I want from God. Well, I think it's important to allow the prayers of the Bible to shape and mold and form our prayers. Here's why. 1 John 5.14 reads this way. This is the confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So when it comes to this matter of asking God for stuff, we can be most confident in our petitions when we're asking God to do his will, to carry out his desires, what he wants to do. And by studying the prayers that are in the Bible, we can learn what his will is through seeing what godly people prayed for and especially what Jesus prayed for. By exploring Bible prayers, we learn what is in the heart of God for this world. So biblical praying is not, you know, twisting God's arm, trying to get him to do something for us. Rather, it's aligning our desires with his desires so that we find ourselves calling out for him to do what is already in his heart to do. Big difference. But that's what biblical praying is. So here we are today, discovering the heart of God from perhaps the most famous prayer in the entire Bible, what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. 
as I was studying this, I think it's interesting what leads up to this prayer where it's found in Matthew chapter 6, the, the context that surrounds it. We find that Jesus is here teaching the people about kingdom living in his famous Sermon on the Mount. And we discover that before he talks about how to pray, he gives a couple of cautions, a couple of warnings. Matthew 6, verse 1, he said this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Interesting. So he's talking about why we do what we do, isn't he? He's talking about motives. He's talking about the intentions of people's hearts. You know, some Christians believe that God is primarily concerned about obedience and outward behavior, but Jesus is telling us here that God is just as concerned about why we obey, about what is driving or motivating us to do the right things, about what is in our hearts. And he clearly says that there's a kind of obedience that is wrongly motivated and will go unrewarded by God because it arises from a heart that just wants to impress people. Beware of pretending, is what he's saying. Pretending in order to elevate yourself in the eyes of others. And then he gave some specific areas where religious people of his day were prone to do just that. Look at verse 2 of Matthew 6. Thus, when you give, he's going to talk about giving now, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you. That's kind of a funny picture, isn't it? I'm going to be giving now. I mean, (laughs) when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. So apparently people were doing this, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So yes, give. Give generously to needy people, but don't pretend to be doing it out of love when in your heart you really just want to look spiritual so that people will think more highly of you. Stop pretending in order to impress people. That's the point here. That's what hypocrites do, and the Father will not reward such ill-motivated generosity. Then a second area of pretending, verse 5. And when you pray, so he talked about giving, now he's talking about praying. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. There it is again. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, the folly, the foolishness of pretending. Apparently in Jesus' day, there were certain people who were were so intent on looking spiritual that they would make a big show of praying in public places in hopes that people would look at them and say, oh my, look at how spiritual that guy is. He must really love God. Jesus was basically saying here, if that's your motive for praying in public, then you'd better make those prayers loud and long so that people will hear you because they're the only ones who will. God turns a deaf ear to pretentious prayer like that. 
And so what we see in these verses is that before telling his listeners how to pray, Jesus first instructs them how not to pray. Don't be a pretender trying to impress people. Then verse 7, notice what he said next. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In that culture, it was commonly believed that the longer your prayers were, the more likely it was that God would hear you. And that was a belief that was adopted from pagan worship ritual. And so, because the people believed this, religious leaders had written out these long prescribed prayers for people to repeat over and over and over again. That's why one translation calls it vain repetitions. This now was an attempt to impress God with your piety, with your spirituality, so that he would hear your requests and do something for you as a result of your long prayers. And so Jesus was saying, look, you don't have to try and impress God to get him to listen. He can hear just fine. Your many phrases aren't really informing him. He already knows everything you need. So to kind of summarize that all together, Jesus was saying, don't pretend in your prayers trying to impress people. And don't perform in your prayers trying to impress God. True prayer is not really about trying to impress anybody, not people and not God. You know, I got to thinking about this, and I got to thinking about how pretending and performing are two natural inclinations of the human heart that can really be deceitful and enslaving. Wouldn't you agree? Pretending and performing. When we think, I've got to do something so that people are impressed with me, it inevitably leads to pretending. Some people spend their entire lives posing and pretending to try and get certain people to think a certain way about them. That's just slavery. And there are people who think, well, I've got to try and impress God with how spiritual I am so that he will be nice to me or bless me or keep my kids safe or not send bad stuff my way. And they're caught up in the performance trap, the performance treadmill. Get the picture of the mouse on the spinning wheel, the performance treadmill. It's very enslaving and exhausting. Listen, there is only one thing that can take an axe to the root of the performing and pretending that is innate and intrinsic to the human heart. You know what it is? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. As people come to truly believe the gospel on deeper and deeper and deeper levels, they will find it has the power to free them from ever having to pretend for people again or perform to try to impress God again. The gospel is the power that breaks the chains. Listen, the truth is that Jesus' humiliating death on the cross has already already exposed the worst about us. I said this last night and a lady came up afterwards and she said, I think I got that for the first time. The humiliating death of Jesus Christ, the shameful death hanging on the cross already exposed how bad our sin is. The cross shows us that all of our sin is absolutely wretched, horrible, and shameful, but that Jesus fully paid for all of it. 
people who truly get this realize they don't have to hide it all any longer. They don't have to pretend to look good for other people. They're freed up from feeling like they have to try to impress people or impress God. Because the cross revealed how totally unimpressive all of us really are. So now there's nothing to prove anymore. Nothing to prove and nothing to protect. That's a good motto for somebody's life. (laughs) Nothing to prove, nothing to protect because of the cross. That's what the cross revealed. And the empty tomb showed us that the only performance that God is really impressed with is whose? Is Jesus' performance. Since the best efforts of humanity at trying to be good are like filthy rags in the sight of God, the Bible tells us, we needed someone who could not only perform flawlessly for God, but who could do it for us, who could do it on our behalf. And that's what Jesus did. You know, I like to say it. He lived the life we could never live. Then he died the death that we all deserved. Then the Father raised him from the dead to demonstrate for everyone to see that he was completely satisfied with Jesus performance. So now everyone who truly believes this gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection should be astonished to know that Jesus' record of awesome performance has been credited to them. I feel like I say this every week. (laughs) We get his straight A report card credited to us. It's scandalous. Totally scandalous. That's what grace is, by the way. He took our sin, gave us his perfect record of righteousness, He died and rose again so that we might really live freed up from pretending and performing. No more having to impress people or God. The gospel liberates those people who believe it at a deep, deep level. And that's the way to live, by the way. Now, I'm supposed to be talking about the Lord's Prayer, so I'm on a roll. Come back. Well, I've taught on the Lord's Prayer before. In fact, I have a notebook about like this, from back in 1991 when I taught through the Lord's Prayer in our singles ministry here. I think I was about eight years old at that point. (laughs) I also taught on it here in Celebrations about four years ago, back in 07. But you know what? I have different lenses now. I'm seeing things differently. And as I studied it this time and I read back through my notes, I thought, you know, I think there's something more here. I think, I don't think I got it all when I've studied it before. I I think there's more here than what I taught in the past. I think there's something deeper here. I just knew it. Bible's like that, you know. It's in layers. God brings you to a point in your life where he peels back another layer and you read the same thing you've read 20 times before and you go, oh my gracious, look at that. That's kind of what's been happening to me. I thank God for the wonderful study resources at our fingertips these days. I mean, we live in an era where a couple clicks of the mouse you can access research you know, from all over the world, from every era. It's amazing. And so thank you, Jesus, for scholars and Bible teachers that your spirit uses to enlighten us to the deeper layers of your word. Here's what I discovered. There is something significant about the way that the Lord's Prayer is structured, about the way it's put together, about how Jesus architected this prayer that I had never seen before. And Understanding this now has made me want to pray more and pray the Lord's Prayer more. And that's what a sermon on the Lord's Prayer should do, don't you think? (laughs) It should make us want to pray. And I hope it will. 
Think about this for a minute. Think about life. You know, all of us, when you think about it, experience life in two realms. Each and every one of us experiences some things in life that are marvelous and magnificent and majestic, and other things that are just mundane. I mean, that's just life, right? (laughs) We encounter some things that are awesome and other things that are just average. Our hearts can be swept up by something fantastic and then come back down to what is just everyday familiar. It's just true. That's just life. And so one moment I'm standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon, this breathtaking view, totally overwhelmed by the immensity of it all, this this grandeur, this majesty. And a few minutes later, I'm picking French fries out from between the seats in our rental car. That's just life. (laughs) That's just how it is. It's majestic and mundane. Awesome and average. Lofty and lowly. Extraordinary and ordinary. Most of us would like to spend all of our lives in that upper tier, wouldn't we? (laughs) The majestic, the grandiose, the awesome, the lofty. But life isn't that way. I believe Jesus knew this about how our lives would be here on the earth. And the structure of this prayer that he gave us reflects this reality. Look at it again. There are six distinct petitions. Do you see them? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I combine those kind of the two sides of the same coin. Six distinct petitions, six requests. Father, cause your name to be hallowed and honored and esteemed and treasured. May your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. Your kingly rule and reign be extended and expanded and deepened here on the earth. May your will be done, your desires, your purposes accomplished. Cause all that to happen. And then give us food and grant us forgiveness and help us in our fight against the flesh, our fight for holiness, our fight against sin and Satan. Six distinct requests, but do you see the division? Of course you do. We all feel it when we read down through that. We we feel the change. We feel the shift of focus right in the middle, don't we? You feel it? from God's purposes to our needs. The movement from grand and lofty and majestic to ordinary and mundane and familiar. Six petitions, but naturally, and I believe intentionally divided into two groups of three. Look at them again. Your name, your kingdom, your will, Our food, our forgiveness, our fight against sin. Jesus knew what our lives would be like. He knew that both of these realms of existence are very real for us and both are important. The lofty and the lowly, the majestic and the mundane. Soaring in the skies and staying grounded 
on the earth. Grandeur and Gerber praying for missionaries in Uganda and changing diapers. I think I changed hundreds of diapers. We spaced our kids out in such a way that about the time one was about done, another one was on the scene with more diapers and hundreds. It got to where, you know, like three in the morning when you're getting up, you just kind of in that catatonic state. You just get, you do it, you know, just by rote in the middle of the night, wake up the next morning, not even remember that you'd gone in and changed a diaper. I don't know why I'm talking about all that. (laughs) Jesus wanted us to know that God is greatly concerned about both of these realms that we live in, his great and grand purposes in our daily mundane lives. He cares about both. Aren't you glad? Both. His glorious purposes for the universe and my daily bread. Both. And so in teaching his people to pray, Jesus calls us to bring before God petitions that arise out of our existence in both of these realms. The extraordinary and the ordinary. For my own understanding, I've begun to refer to these two realms of existence and their corresponding petitions in prayer. Indulge me now. In the upper, as, as the upper tier and the lower tier. Upper tier prayers and lower tier prayers. Upper tier prayers are prayers of alignment, where we're getting ourselves and our hearts in alignment with God. And lower tier prayers are prayers of supplication, where we're asking him to supply our needs. And as I thought about this more, it occurred to me that the opening of this prayer that we just kind of skipped over also points to this same distinction. How does the prayer begin? Our Father in heaven. You feel it? Feel the distinction? Both realms? Our Father. Think about that for a minute. Our Father. By the way, to the audience that Jesus would have been speaking to, that would have sounded almost blasphemous. For Jews to address the mighty God as Daddy, they they never would have done such a thing, to address Him in such familiar terms. But of course, Jesus was inaugurating a new era in God's plan, wasn't He? An era that would be lived in the wake of a bloody cross, and a torn veil, and an empty tomb, events that would change how the holy God related to his creation and how people might relate to their creator. And so he says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father, Daddy. Do you feel the tenderness in that term, Dad? Do you feel the care? Do you feel the desire and intent to provide and care and help and guide? I I see this this drawing near to daddy as connected to the lower tier petitions. Food, forgiveness, leading, deliverance. That's what daddies do. Those who know God as their father through Jesus Christ, that's how you know him as your father, might pray like this. Father, you are my daddy. And as your child, you know, Father, I have needs. I want to be healthy. I I want to be whole. I want to be nourished and sustained so I can live. I want to live. 
That's why I'm coming to you. I'm looking to you as my source for daily bread. And dad, I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness for my sins. And I I need your grace to forgive those who've sinned against me. I don't want to live at odds with other people or with you, but I can't manage this on my own, so forgive me, Father, and enable me to forgive others like you've forgiven me and not hold grudges against them. And Father, I struggle. You know, I struggle in my daily battle with temptation and sin. Temptations feel too strong for me. Father, lead me away from those those situations that I'm not yet equipped to handle. Deliver me, deliver me from the influences of evil and the evil one. Our Father. So I, I think our Father invites God's people to view God as a daddy who desires to meet them at their point of need and provide for those needs. It's a precious prayer, isn't it? Our Father. Our Father in heaven. We all have earthly fathers. My dad's about 2,500 miles away. He's a great father. But there are times because of the distance where he can't help me. But I have a heavenly father. He's in heaven. This phrase in heaven lifts us up. It elevates us to 30,000 feet. Gives us a vantage point from which we can see the big picture, the higher plane, the loftier sights, the grander purposes for the universe. Father seems to me to draw us to petition him for our own needs. Those lower tier petitions. But in heaven calls us upward to call out for higher and loftier things. His name to be honored. His kingdom to be firmly established. His will, his desires to be accomplished. Upper tier concerns. Do you see this? So here's what I'm coming to understand. The very structure of this prayer, the very structure of it is significant and should inform my praying. There's a rhythm here. There's a a spiritual undulation that is meant to carry us back and forth between these two realms in which we exist, the majestic and the mundane, his purposes and our needs. I believe the Lord's Prayer is a call for us to live our lives in all of its dimensions, in an ongoing, spirit-led conversation with our Father King. All of our life. Now, here are a few observations about this upper-tier, lower-tier distinction that I think will help us when we pray. Number one, lower-tier petitions, food, forgiveness, help in the fight, lower-tier petitions are likely meant to support and serve upper-tier petitions. Think about that for a minute. You You wouldn't pray like this. Father, may your kingdom come so that my daily bread might arrive on time. Doesn't sound right, does it? Feels upside down. Father, cause your name to be hallowed so that I can experience your forgiveness. I mean, that it sounds backwards. It seems obvious that the ultimate reason that we would pray those lower tier prayers is to serve the higher purposes of the upper tier. Father, please provide us with food today and forgiveness and help us in the fight for holiness so that 
we might live in such a way as to honor your name and see your kingdom deepened in us and your will done on the earth. The lower is meant to serve the higher. Wouldn't you agree with that? That means that if we get stuck in the lower tier and never or rarely allow ourselves to be drawn up into the heavens to petition God for the glorious and magnificent purposes of his in the universe, then we will miss something very important. We might even begin to think that we are the ultimate end of all things and that God exists to serve us. Feed me, God. Forgive me. Win my battles for me. You see, we need the upper tier petitions to remind us that we're caught up in a big story that is huge and universe-filling and majestic and that our little story finds its meaning only as it is drawn up into the big story of God. So thank you, God, for the upper tier petitions of the Lord's Prayer that call us beyond ourselves to higher things. A second observation. This first petition, the first upper tier petition, what is it? Hallowed be thy name. When you think about it, that seems to be the ultimate aim of all the other petitions, doesn't it? That's why it's first placed prominently in this prayer. Now, we've said there are six petitions in the prayer. There's this very natural division into three and three. But now I believe we should see that this first petition seems to stand apart from the other five. So now we have one and five. Can you see why? Took me a while. Some of you are smarter than I am. You already understood this. This first petition, hallowed be thy name, is distinct from the others. Why? Because there's nothing beyond it. It doesn't point to some other higher or nobler cause. There is no other higher or nobler cause than hallowing God's name. That's the end game. Which, by the way, is what worship is. When you get your heart in a state where it's saying, God, I want your name to be honored and esteemed and treasured and cherished in my heart above everything else. That's what worship is. And worship is the end game of the universe. You can't push up any higher into God's purposes for humanity than this, hallowing his name. We don't pray, hallowed be your name so that there is no so that. Because that is the ultimate aim of the universe. The other five petitions could all be said to serve this one, when you think of it this way. Father, provide my daily food and forgive me my trespasses and enable me to forgive others and help me in the fight with sin so that your name will be honored in my life. And may your kingdom come and your will be done so that your name will be magnified in all the universe, because that's the ultimate end, final goal, ultimate aim of the universe, to honor God's name. Hallowed be thy name. Thy name. Let's think about name for a minute. What's the meaning of a name? You know, in the Bible, names were representative of the essence of a person. God revealed his name. 
he gave it to Moses, the great deliverer, when he said, you know, so you want me to go tell your people that I'm going to deliver them from Pharaoh? Who should I say sent me? God said, I'll give you my name. Tell him, I am who I am sent you. That's an interesting name. Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Tell them that Yahweh sent you. I am who I am. Interesting. Not I am who you want me to be. Or I am who you think I am. No, I am who I am, period. That's his name. The eternally self-existent God, his name represents his true essence. And when a believer sincerely prays, hallowed be thy name, he or she is declaring that the highest desire of their heart is to treasure and honor and esteem and cherish God and his name above everything else in their life. And that's worship. And that's what we were all created for. And that's what brings us great joy. One final thing. Final observation. Allowing God, number three, to regularly draw us up into the upper tier will free us from our natural inclination to obsess over lower tier concerns. (laughs) As a pastor, one thing I've observed in the lives of people over the years and in my own life is the natural human inclination to get all anxious and upset and obsessed over lower tier stuff. When we're in this mindset, all we can see, we're kind of myopic, all we can see is how everything relates to us. My food, my health, my relationships, my well-being. And when we allow that to happen, our life shrinks, doesn't it? And it just gets smaller. It shrivels up and gets smaller and smaller. And we find ourselves living these puny, teeny, tiny little lives that are all encased around us. Let me say this. Sooner or later in your life, you will find yourself in a situation that will bring you to the point of being overwhelmed by lower-tier concerns. That's just life. You can't escape it. It's either happened or is happening or will happen. Situations will arise. God will allow them. In which your own personal, individual needs will loom large. I need food. I need money to buy food to sustain my life. I need my health restored. I need relief from guilt. I need fractured relationships and friendships to be restored. I'm distant from people I want to be close to. Sometime in your life, you'll come face to face with your own limitations and weakness and inability to deal with forces beyond your control. And if you are not alert, and if you are not aware, all of these concerns will come together and will overwhelm you and will dominate your thinking. And your life will get really, really, really small. And people will notice it, the people around you. And I believe it's in those moments that God wants to call us up to a higher view. Now hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you should stop praying, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. 
Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Never stop praying those prayers. He is the source for everything that we need in those areas. But rather than getting stuck there, seek to allow the Spirit of God in those moments to pull you up higher. To open your eyes, to visualize the connection between lower tier and upper tier. To fill you with a consuming desire that no matter what happens to you or what happens around you, your heart is resolved to be most deeply committed to His name, His kingdom, His will being done. We will live larger lives when we see our story connecting and leading to His story. That's what the upper tier requests are all about. So we all need God to regularly and often lift us up in the upper tier realm in our prayers, the expansive realm of the majestic and magnificent of His glorious purposes for our lives and for the universe. And when that happens, it'll keep us from living tiny, puny lives that are mired down in minutiae, where we won't end up accurately reflecting the glory of the great God who made us. And so the Lord's Prayer, prayed often in the way that we've been talking about, can do that in us. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Well, what a magnificent and glorious and deep prayer this is. It's beautiful. It's multifaceted. Thank you, Jesus, for giving it to us. And I hope, truly, your understanding of this prayer in in its breadth and its depth has been enlarged today and will continue to be enlarged throughout the rest of your life as you pray it. I think so now that maybe we have a little deeper understanding, I think it's fitting to pray this prayer together, together again. Not pretending, not trying to impress anybody else, and not trying to perform for God and impress Him but just coming to our Father who is in heaven, seeking His provision for our needs and also calling out for His great purposes to prevail in our lives and on the earth. So let's pray it again in the beautiful language of the King James Version. Jesus said, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.